It's like old-timey radio standing up here. Well, I don't have to do anything here, right? I'm not saying anything. On this episode of the podcast, the Veterans Breakfast Club launches the post-9-11 Veterans Storytelling Project. On Longest War, the podcast of the VBC Post-9-11 Veterans Storytelling Project, we feature the stories and experiences of Pittsburgh's Post-9-11 Veterans. I'm Nick Grimes, Army Veteran of Afghanistan and host of the podcast. Our guest today is Todd DePastino, Executive Director of the Veterans Breakfast Club. Thank you for having me, Nick. Because I'm your boss and I asked to be on your podcast, could you say no? me? I don't know if I could. I probably should have, but I don't know if I had the ability to do so or not. Well, I, I do appreciate doing this with you, Nick, because I, I uh, am very excited about our new project, the Post-9-11 Veterans Storytelling Project, and we're so excited to have you direct this project. I'm excited about getting a bunch of Post-9-11 veterans in the room. Like The breakfasts are so amazing. Yeah. And if we can even get close to that kind of vibe, that kind of um, feeling of like camaraderie in the room with these vets, I think we'll really be on to something special. I mean, we've been doing these storytelling events with the older vets for years now. We get a lot of World War II vets, Korean era, Vietnam uh, veterans, and just a smattering of Gulf War and post 9-11 veterans at our events. And it's it just, we realized it was time if we were really going to grow and if we were really going to remain kind of relevant and, and urgent, in, in a sense, that we would have to get the younger vets together. But boy, the young vets don't come out on a Wednesday morning to a church for a breakfast, you know, because they're busy and they have families. And we just knew that we would need another track of programming to get them and their stories. Right. It's it's tough to, to get those morning ones. Like, you know, I couldn't really ask my boss, like, hey, can I go have breakfast with a bunch of people um, and I'll be in by like 11 or so. Like it just, it, it doesn't work out. But I think doing these ones in the evening, it's going to open doors. Right. So I think that's our, our best opportunity to get everybody in a room together. So that was your idea to have these, have these events, not at a, you know, in a, in a church basement like we sometimes do or in a banquet facility in the morning, but have evening events at a brewery or a bar or a restaurant. And, and that's what you're, you've been lining up, right? I think the primary reason for wanting to do to those type of venues is I've seen that those are the best, those are the best type of venues to get guys to. Right. And we're, we're really aware that we want our events to be social events. We want them, for lack of a better word, to be entertaining. Uh, we want people to enjoy themselves, but we also want people to know that there's a serious program at work, even in the socializing. And the program is the storytelling. And, and there's a kind of a fine line between having an overly formal program uh, and and then having it just be a, a social event. So we're, we try to mix those two together. And we had our first one at Voodoo Brewery in Homestead. And Jake Volker, an, uh, an Army Afghanistan vet, opened the doors to us and our group. And we ended up getting about 30 or 35 people there and sharing stories. And it was that was a, a kind of a wonderful kickoff for this project. It was. It was a good event. I'm happy with the turnout for it for the first time. People got there early. Uh, they had some food. They had a drink. They got to socialize. They got to. It really helped uh, as an icebreaker to have that 30-minute period before where people are just kind of uh, getting in the habit of talking to other folks. So by the time the microphone comes around and it's their turn to talk, they've already been talking for the last 20 minutes. So we don't have to get them in the mood to share anything. They've already been doing it for a little while. Right. And I, and I think 
you know, word has to get around about what the what these events really are. I know when I tell people that I'm the director of the Veterans Breakfast Club, they think that I kind of cook eggs and bacon for veterans in the morning. And the eggs and bacon are part of it. They're, they're part of the, the kind of fellowship or, or socializing before the program starts. But when the program starts, it's a, it's a program. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we have the PA system and the microphone and we work the room to get the veterans to share stories. And that goes on for 90 minutes. And, uh, you know, you laugh a little, you cry a little, and you end up feeling educated and inspired and, and you know, even maybe even healed for some veterans. And that's kind of what I envisioned for this post-9-11 veterans project. It was interesting at the Voodoo Brewery to kind of note that we're really dealing with a different population with the young vets than we are with the older vets. You know, there, there, are, there are differences. There's a great, a great amount of similarity between uh, service people, no matter when they serve. One of the serious generational differences between you, you know, a 30-year-old Army vet and the Vietnam, Korea, World War II era people, is that you're all volunteers. How does that make you different, do you think? Well, first of all, at the time, I don't think a lot of us knew exactly what we were volunteering for, honestly. I sure didn't. Most of the Vietnam vets didn't have a choice. These were guys that, you know, they were finishing high school, some were in college, some were in trade school, some were, you know, starting a job. They were starting their adult lives, and then all of a sudden, they got a letter in the mail. Like that, they're upended. They're basic training. They don't know what branch they're going into. They don't know what MOS they're going into. They had no control over the whole process. You know, I picked the Army. I didn't get forced into the Army. There was no, you show up to MEPS, every fourth person goes to Marine Corps. What is MEPS? Military Enlistment Processing Station. They give you your physical and okay, you, okay. You, uh, you go take some tests and they, and they figure out what's a good job for you once you get in. And you, so you go there and can I tell you a funny story about that? Sure. So we're at MAPS and you're standing and everyone's in their underwear standing along this line. And the doctor calls everyone into this little kind of like kind semi-private room. And he tells you to bend over and spread your cheeks. Uh, and he has a little flashlight. And I guess he's looking for hemorrhoids or something. Well, the guy, like two people in front of me goes in. He says, bend over, spread your cheeks. And so he bends over at the waist, but then spreads his actual cheeks. <laughs> his cheeks on his mouth. The, the doctor, who I, I think was a civilian, he wasn't in uniform, <laughs> threw his flashlight across the room. And he was like, are you fucking with me, boy? Is that what this is? And it was the funniest thing. The, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. The doctor got so upset. And I can't imagine... Because he was an older guy. I can't imagine that was the first time anyone's ever done that. So I'm just curious to how many people a day pull that. <laughs> and if this guy in front of me was just the fifth one to do it, and it set the guy over the edge. <laughs> yes, right. But that set the tone for my military experience, right? <laughs> well, it really is a different kettle of fish uh, dealing with the working with the post-9-11 veterans than it is with the older veterans. Because you are all volunteers. Afghanistan and Iraq, those are two wars that we our first wars, really, that we've ever fought, uh, extended wars with an all-volunteer military. And our military is extremely small today. You know, when the Vietnam vets were, when the Vietnam veterans were in service, it was a very common thing for a young man to be in the Army or the Navy or the Marines. Uh, but today, it's rather uncommon. You know, when I was growing up in the 1970s, everybody on, every dad on the street was a veteran. Uh, that's not the case anymore. So I, I just imagine that kind of one of the uh, things that our project, our storytelling project is addressing with the post-9-11 veterans is, 
is this kind of civilian military gap that we have today, a kind of a gap in understanding. Uh, civilians generally don't understand what military service entails anymore. I think 40 or 50 years ago, everybody had a good understanding. Everybody had a brother or a cousin who was in the service. Today, uh, one half of 1% of our population serves in the military. That gap is real. And I think it's incumbent upon civilians to kind of breach that gap. And what we're hoping for this project is uh, we'll begin to close that gap a bit by encouraging the veterans to share their stories with the public so that we can be educated as to what fighting in a war is like and what serving the military is like. What I thought was, was really cool for me there was meeting Jake, Jake Volker, uh, the owner of the Voodoo Brewery. We were both stationed uh, during our deployments in Kunar Province, Afghanistan, which is a small province northeastern Afghanistan, and we had both been to the Korangal Valley. Maybe in the entire world, a thousand people have been to that valley that don't live there. The likelihood of me meeting another human being that has been to that valley that I don't already know because I, they weren't in my unit is what, a thousand out of 300 million in the country? It's such a small percentage of people. I think I didn't realize how unlikely that was until you just said it. The Korngal was only open from 2005 to 2008. A thousand people that are not native to the Korngal Valley have ever been there. And then I, I met another one at this event the other night, and it'll probably never happen again. My, the rest of my adult life, I'll, I'll die, and Jake will be the one guy that I met. That you've run into by I, accident. Yeah, who to, was there. totally uh, coincidentally, yeah. I eavesdropped on your conversation, and I found it absolutely fascinating. It's like you were finishing each other's sentences. You knew exactly what you two were talking about. And I wish that we had had these microphones that we're talking into right now right before you so that we could capture some of this. And so much of what you were saying to each other were echoes of what I've heard even from World War II vets about vets who served in a particular theater, met each other, and could begin kind of, they knew immediately where each other was when they were there, and that they knew the landmarks, they knew the episodes that took place, you know, the planes that were flying overhead at that moment. And that's what it was like with you guys. And also, I have to say, you knew how unique your place was. Uh, you were That was probably, if I'm not mistaken, the most remote part of the Afghanistan theater, the most unconnected from from uh, the you know our our homeland uh, from here in the U.S., I, I got the sense that when you were there in the Korangal, you weren't skyping home, you weren't on Facebook, you guys weren't you were really disconnected from back home. When the Korangal was first built, the guys from Alpha Company that were there, like there was there was if if you could not speak to the other person via a military tax app, then you couldn't speak to the person. So there was no there were no phone calls for these guys. They would have to leave the Korangal Valley, drive to Asadabad which was, you know, a good hour drive away to get showers, use the phones, use the computer. Wow. Because Jake was there. He was an engineer. They were building the, the base up a little bit, and everything was focused, uh, what Jake said, on protective barriers, building um, fortified hooches, fortified bunkers, things like that. I don't think they were spending a lot of time and effort into improving MWR facilities out there. But that was pretty typical of most of Kunar province. I mean, Kunar province is the middle of... It's the middle of nowhere. You, you can drive for a few hours at a time without seeing a single person. There's little tiny villages scattered throughout it, but it's mostly, it's mostly just this river valley with nothing as far as the eye can see. And what was so interesting about Wednesday night is we heard a little bit from you, 
and a little bit from Jake, just kind of thanking everybody, and and he was you know he was hosting us, and we were very grateful. Uh, and then we heard from a, a, another variety of veterans, and that was that was really neat to kind of get different voices who had different kinds of experiences. You know, we had Ben Stahl, who was a Navy vet, who talked about his service on a minesweeper. Said he would have spent 20 years at boot camp. Yes, how much he loved boot camp. Oh my gosh, was that a hoot. He could. He said he could spend the rest of his life in boot camp. He loved it so much. So what brought you to the Navy, Ben? Uh, September 11th. Well, I was still living at home, and my sister woke me up. It's was like, hey, I think we're at war, and I went to the recruiter the next day. Did you like boot camp? I would do 20 years in boot camp. If I could get a retirement from boot camp, I'd be in Great Lakes tomorrow. It's tying knots. They show you how to dance with a mop. It's great times. Wearing bell bottoms all day. It's fun. And then what was great was having uh, Robert Garofalo, who was a, a Marine, uh, came up and spoke and said, uh, you know, I went to boot camp too, and I don't remember it being a good time. Right. And he told a great story about using the word I. How'd you get to the Marine Corps? I was also a senior when 9-11 happened, and I saw the tower hit. I have a lot of family from New York. Uh, and originally I was like, oh, I'm gonna go to the Air Force. I wanna be an air traffic controller. And then like something in my brain said, you should go hurt people that hurt your family. So that's what I did. If you really want the truth. So went to the Marine Corps. Uh, I graduated high school on a Friday. On a Monday morning, the following Monday morning, I was in Paris Island. Uh, did that thing. I know you heard about fun stuff that happened at boot camp. There wasn't anything fun in my boot camp. Um, well, uh, there may be one thing. So I said I one time, bad, bad thing to do at a Marine Corps boot camp. So I stood in front of a mirror for about 45 minutes saying, I, this recruit, I, this recruit for 45 minutes. That's my funny story, thank you. You're not allowed to say I, there is no I. No, it's this recruit. This was a good event because we're looking for a variety of experiences, people who liked it, people who didn't like it, people who served you know, in, in tough combat positions like you did, people who served in support positions or at sea. I mean, we're kind of looking for all kinds of different experiences. We're especially looking for a diversity of voices, racial diversity, ethnic diversity. We'd like you know, women, uh, their service to be represented in our storytelling project, and we were lucky to have a, have a woman there who, who spoke, Megan Andros, a West Point graduate. I know what it's like to be a soldier and the spouse of a soldier. <laughs> so you and Dave were actually in the same brigade. You were deployed together, correct? He moved to Taji from a JSS, a Joint Security Station, probably month 10 of the 12-month tour. And prior to month 10, we, I think, saw each other twice. I think the first time was maybe month five or six, and we were like four miles apart from each other. Those four miles may as well have been a thousand. Right. Yeah, I'd, I'd really, I think it's important for us to get, you know, even if they deployed for six months to Kuwait, um, you know, a mother that had to leave her, her child behind for that amount of time, then those are powerful stories. It's not all about combat. I mean, there's, there's certainly lots of stressors on you just being gone, regardless of what your job was. You know, a cook that's gone from their family for a year, you know, may not see intense combat, but they're still gone from their family for a year and things happen. Uh, so there's no one that deploys downrange to Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, even some degree Kuwait or Kyrgyzstan. No one knows for sure that they're coming back. I mean, things happen every single day and every single fob across Afghanistan and Iraq. So it's still, it's still very stressful for most people. 
How conscious are you day to day of that possibility that you may never get back home? You're more conscious of it when you first get there and slowly you become less concerned with it. Uh, one of the places uh, I was at my second tour, this place, Fob Joyce, they called it Rocket City. We would take rockets and mortars like no other. They would come down every day. Uh, one day we got like 22 of them that came in and I was actually, so I was Skyping with my wife in the MWR tent when a couple of rounds came in. And it would have been very frightening for her to see that had there not been an Indian contractor that was there. The Indian guys that would come in, they would cook the food, they would clean the tents and stuff. And this guy, he was fairly new to the FOB. So as soon as that first round hit, and my wife can see him sweeping behind me in the background, he drops his broom and he takes off running. And then you see him come the other direction because he's not sure where to go. And then two or three seconds later, you see him pass by going the other direction once again. And so I'm laughing hysterically from watching this guy. And it, my wife wasn't as concerned if she would have been because she could also see all the other guys behind me at the computer stalls and everyone's having the same reactions. We're all just laughing at this guy and no one's running other than him. Right. So at that point, you're, you're just like, well, I mean, if it's going to hit you, it's going to hit you, right? Like there's nothing, there's nothing you can really do about a lot of that comes down to, especially on larger fobs, you know, who's in the wrong place at the wrong time. You, right. can, you can be the most careful, cautious guy in the world and it doesn't matter. And let's tell our audience what a fob is. Fob's a Ford operating base. Okay. They vary in size. And then there's, there's cops, cop combat outpost. Okay. Cops are about a company size, uh, maybe a slightly larger than a company, maybe a company plus a platoon. Fobs are significantly vary. Some have entire battalions, brigades. Some have two companies, two companies plus. FOBs in Iraq were much larger than FOBs in Afghanistan, typically, right. because there are so, so many more soldiers in Iraq. Right. Personally, my goal with this new program is to have an open, honest conversation with vets of all backgrounds, all branches, all MOSs, all jobs. Some had great experiences, some had terrible experiences. But we appreciate each other's experiences, regardless of what side of it we fall on. And I think being able to get people in a room together and share their experiences, it, it's, it's healthy for all of us. Yes. It helps us all cope. It helps us all be supportive. Every time I meet a group of veterans, I learn something that I had no clue that the Navy was doing or the Air Force was doing. So it helps us paint a better picture of what the experience is like and put a little more context on our own situations when we paint that broad picture. That's right. And imagine how uh, civilians are educated by these stories. You know, somebody like me who has no military experience, it's all new. We're all learning when we hear you guys share your stories. And I'm grateful that a couple foundations have funded this project, the Jefferson Regional Foundation, especially recognized right away that this was the kind of project that we could really use here in Pittsburgh. The Mary Hillman Jennings Foundation also recognized the need for this. And these foundations are kind of funding this project through the first year, hopefully a second year, to get it going, to grow it, to let young veterans living in Western Pennsylvania know that this is going on, and hopefully to come out to our events and share stories and also sit down for interviews. And that's another part of what our project is, is not just the live public storytelling programs, but also the individual interviews that are for 60 minutes or 90 minutes where veterans simply can tell their stories in their own ways. And we've done a few of these, and boy, are they fascinating also. I like that with this generation, we're getting these stories while they're still 
for the most part, fresh. Right. Um, and that comes with its own set of challenges too, because some people haven't had time to process what they've gone through, but there's still, there's so many small details that they can still remember very, very clearly that are lost to some of the older guys because you know, we've waited 30, 40, 60 years even to get some of these folks' stories. But I think with the, with the younger guys, getting them now is important. It's also healthy for them because it's something they'll be able to go back and listen to a few years from now, 10, 20 years down the road, when they are done coping and processing and figuring out, you know, exactly what happened to them. And they can go back and listen to their younger self, talk about it. And, right. you know, maybe there'll be things in that story that we recorded that they forgot later on. Right. that will help rejog that memory and help bring it and a clearer picture for them. So I think connecting veterans to the community, civic engagement, you know, having uh, veterans engage with the community. I have a very strong sense meeting so many young veterans through you and, and others that uh, young veterans are tremendous leaders out of proportion to their numbers, and they have a lot to offer the community. We could, we really need them. I'm hoping that this project will help kind of bring these veterans to the surface and allow the community to learn who they are and hear a bit about their stories. So I would ask uh, anyone who's listening, who's interested or who knows a young veteran who may be interested in joining us, you could always find our schedule at veteransbreakfastclub.com. You could always email nick at nick at veteransbreakfastclub.com. Or you could give us a call if you want to learn more at 412-623-9029. Todd, thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks so much for, I don't want to say it. um, Being a great guy. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for being so handsome, Todd. (laughs) You handsome devil. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Our guest today has been Todd DiPastino, Executive Director of the Veterans Breakfast Club. To find out more about the Veterans Breakfast Club and the Post-9-11 Veterans Storytelling Project, visit us online at veteransbreakfastclub.com and be sure to join us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. I'm Nick Grimes. See you next time. Longest War is a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network, a nonprofit nonprofit project project of the Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh Oral History Initiative.